Um, anyway, thank you for being here. Let's pray to open the session, and then we'll we'll jump right in. Fathers, we come here today. Lord, we are grateful for the the mission that you are on and that you invite us to join you in. Lord, thank you for the GMHC and, and all of the efforts that have gone into this. For those who are attending this conference, Lord, that they would be challenged uh, to live their lives on mission. Lord, specifically about the Great Commission. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, just to make sure, you guys can hear me okay? All right. Just to make sure you're in the right session, um, there's five principles for empowering on short-term trips. What we're going to do today is I'm going to give you a little bit of background on me so you know where I'm coming from um, and the ministry that I'm on. Then we're going to talk about the Great Commission because... We, we really cannot empower if we don't know what the mission that we're on is. And it's very difficult for me to comprehend 3.2 billion people. That number is, you who never heard, that number is huge. But we're going to put it into a way, through an illustration, that we all can comprehend. Okay? At least most of us will. And then, we're going to talk about those five principles and I have uh, some videos. So it's not just me talking to you, but it's people from here and from around the world sharing with you how we can, as a, as a people, as the church, how we can empower people around the world um, to further the Great Commission. Alright? So that's what we're going to plan to do. First of all, this is my family. Um, the one person other than me that is male, that is my son-in-law. <laughs> so we do have six daughters. Hallelujah. People oftentimes ask me, so Jamie, uh, why do you travel so much? <laughs> but yeah, we're, we're starting to add boys into the family. So I have one son-in-law, um, and then... Uh, our girls, we have twins who are 13, and my oldest daughter is 21. So, I told my wife when we started multiplying rather than adding, I was done. Uh, many people oftentimes ask me at this conference, fewer this year than, than previous years, how's your dad doing? Uh, my dad used to speak here at the conference every year, was a plenary speaker one year. He had a spinal cord injury ten and a half years ago. His last time speaking at the GMHC was about eight years ago. Um, and you should watch the video of that. Great illustration that is the, the way we should not do missions. Really, really good. And then these are my grandparents. This is kind of where the, the story started. And I'm going to share a little bit of this story with you. I can't share everything because we don't have that much time. Um, if you would like more of the story, you can stop by the booth, and we have some of these, uh, End of the Spear. The movie, just so you're aware, the movie End of the Spear is two chapters of the book. So the book goes into a lot more than, than what that did. But here pictured is my grandfather. My dad is the, is the little boy there. My grandfather, Nate Saint, 
with a missionary pilot serving missionaries down in the Amazon rainforest of Ecuador, South America. His job was to fly missionaries in and out, fly supplies in and out. But as he was uh, flying over the jungles, there was one area of the jungles that no other pilots would fly over. It was known at that time as Alca territory because nobody had ever gotten close enough to these people to know what they called themselves. And their, their true tribal name is Waudani. Now, my grandfather knew that these people, a very violent society, that they needed to hear the gospel. So he put a group of five men together. So it was him, Nate, Jim Elliott, Roger Darian, Pete Fleming, and Ed McCauley. Young men, ages 27 to 32. And as he was flying over the jungles in support of missionaries, he would purposefully fly over this territory. It's about 6,000 square miles of Amazon in the foothills of the Andes. Mm. And in 1955, about middle of the year, as he was flying, he actually spotted uh, an, a clearing where the Waodani lived, where one family group lived. Now, to understand the story, you need to understand the people. They were a very violent society, but they were an egalitarian society, which means there was no laws, no, no rules of any kind. But... Even in this society, there did become four unwritten rules that everybody lived by. And they went something like this. Rule number one. If somebody does something that offends you, ignore it. Rule number two. If somebody does something that offends you and you can't ignore it, kill them. Rule number three. If somebody kills somebody in your family group, it's not only your right, it's your obligation to kill somebody in their family group. And finally, rule number four, if, whether you've been offended or to avenge a death in your family, you're going to kill somebody in another family group, take your whole family group with you, kill the whole other family group, that way there's nobody left to come kill you or your family. They were a society of death. Anthropologists who have since studied this tribe said that these were the most violent people that have ever lived, that have been studied. They had a 60% homicide rate inside the tribe. But my grandfather believed what the Bible says is true, that in the last day, there will be people from every tribe, every nation, every kindred, and every tongue, willingly before God's throne, giving Him praise. He said, how are they going to hear unless somebody goes? So, in the uh, middle of the year, 1955, they spawned this clearing. They called it Terminal City. It's actually known as Tiwano. And he wanted a way to be able to show the tribe that he was friendly. So he had devised what we call the bucket drop, where he would let out about 1,000 to 1,200 feet of line with a bucket on the end behind his airplane. And then as he would fly in very tight circles, about 500 feet above the ground, the bucket would work in the opposite way of the airplane until it would hang motionless below the airplane. How many of you have seen End of the Smear, the movie? Okay. My dad was a stunt pilot in the movie, and you actually see the bucket drop, and if you look at the bucket, the string is going back and forth. 
Now, quick um, fun fact. When they filmed the movie, End of the Spear, while my dad did the bucket drop scene, in the longhouse right next to it, there were two people. This is a God thing. There was Minkai, the man who killed my grandfather, and my grandmother. Just the two of them sitting there as my dad did the bucket drop. Anyway, cool God story. So what my grandfather began doing for 13 weeks, they wanted to show the Indians that they were friendly, so they began giving gifts through the bucket drop. Well, soon the Indians built a platform on which to receive the bucket and began giving gifts back. Things like um, a comb, um, a feathered headdress from a toucan. You guys know the toucan? Fruitloo bird, right? So they would make a, a crown of feathers from the toucan. A live parrot, which became my dad's pet. And later we talked to uh, to Pa, and they had taken his pet parrot to give them, you know, the missionaries or the, the airplane. And then roasted monkey meat. Now, has anybody had roasted monkey meat? No? Would you like to know what it tastes like? Chicken. You would think chicken, right? No, it tastes almost just like toucan. Well, finally, after 13 weeks, it was Christmas of 1955, and my grandfather decided it was time for them to make contact. And I want to read just an excerpt from End of the Spear, page 309, from my grandfather's journals. Again, he was the oldest member. He was 32 years old. He said this, As we have a high old time this Christmas, may we who know Christ hear the cry of the damned, as they hurtle headlong into the Christless night without ever a chance. Would that we could comprehend the lot of these Stone Age people who live in mortal fear of ambush on the jungle trail, those to whom the bark of a gun means sudden, mysterious death, those who think all men in all the world are killers like themselves. If God would grant us the vision the word sacrifice would disappear from our lips and thoughts. We would hate the things that seem now so dear to us. Our lives would suddenly be too short. We would despise time-robbing distractions and charge the enemy with all our energies in the name of Christ. May God help us to judge ourselves by the eternities that separate the Alcas from a comprehension of Christmas and Him. And though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that we might, through his poverty, be made rich. In early 1956, my grandfather ferried the men into a beach on the Kurudai or Iwanguda River, two ridges over from Terminal City, Tiwano. They had prefabricated a treehouse to protect themselves from the wild animals. Each night, my grandfather would fly the airplane out to Arahuno uh, because the river can, can rise several feet overnight. And if they don't have the airplane, they wouldn't be able to get out. If there's any pilots in the room, the beach was 600 feet long, right after a curve in the river. Finally, on Friday, January 6, 1956, out of the jungles came two young ladies and a young man. 
There was no animosity. There was no hostility. This was the first friendly contact in recorded history going back at least ten generations. The, the man was fascinated. He, they named him George, his tribal name, Nankiwi. He was fascinated with my grandfather's airplane. So he got in the airplane and my grandfather figured he wanted to go for a ride. He figured he probably wanted to see his his clearing from the air and so he flew him over and then came back. And Nankiwi didn't get out of the airplane. See, Nankiwi didn't want to see the ground from the air. He really wanted people to see him. So my grandfather took him back again and Nankiwi started stepping out on the strut of the airplane. It's kind of like if you or I were to get a new car. We really don't care who we see when we're driving that car. We do care who sees us. Well, their tribal costume wasn't very, you know, it was easy to keep clean because it consisted of a string around their waist. So being a pilot, I can only imagine what was going through my grandfather's head. Like, if he keeps going, this is not going to end well. But what do I grab to pull him back? Fortunately, they made it back safely. And later, later in the afternoon, Nankiwi and the younger of the two ladies left. The older of the two ladies, who would probably be in her late 20s, which was very old at that time, left just before dawn. These five men were ecstatic. They knew the next chapter that God was going to write. That they were going to have the opportunity to share the gospel with the Waodani who so desperately needed it. Well, January 7th came and, and went. No contact. Then on January 8th, the Sunday, my grandfather, since there was no contact, he flew back over where the clearing was and didn't see anybody. And as he was flying back, he's looking down, but you can't see anything through the three canopies of the rainforest. But the rivers that snaked back and forth, as he looked down, he saw some of the tribe coming towards the beach. He called my grandmother. He said, Marge. He said, it looks like they're coming for the afternoon service. I'll call you again at 4 o'clock. But 4 o'clock came and there's no contact. As my grandfather's body, having been pierced with multiple spears, including one through his head, his body having been thrown in the river, all five men dead. Well, how can this be? They knew the chapter that God was going to write, allowing them to share the gospel. But like any good author, God never writes the whole story in just one chapter. You know, in church, we like verses like Romans 8.28. Probably most of you can quote it. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. How many of you can quote 2 Timothy 3.12? A little bit less common in church today. It says, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall live happily ever after. <laughs> That's not how it reads, does it? It says, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's one of those promises in the Bible that we don't like to talk about a lot. But it is a promise. See, that was not the end of the story. That was just the end of one chapter of the story. The next chapter began two years later when Aunt Rachel, my grandfather's sister, and Elizabeth Elliot, 
the, the widow of Jim, as they were invited in to live with the tribe. My great aunt had been living with Dayuma, who had fled the killings years earlier. And after my grandfather was killed, she went back in and then came out and invited these two ladies to, to live in the jungles. Two years after my great aunt went in, my dad got to go in for the first time. He was about nine years old. And a short time after he was in there, Minkai, the man who killed my grandfather, he went up to Aunt Rachel and he said, Nemo, how can Baba, my dad, how can he not know how to live? He doesn't know how to hunt. He doesn't know how to track. He doesn't know how to use a blowgun or a spear. How can he be so ignorant? And Aunt Rachel turned back to Minkai and said, Minkai, you having spear killed his father, who do you say should teach him how to live? And Minkai left. Because if Minkai teaches my dad how to hunt, how to track, how to use a blowgun and how to use a spear, he's really giving him the tools and the training to avenge his dad's death by killing Minkai or members of Minkai's family. But later that afternoon, Minkaya came back. He said, it's true. Having spear killed his father, I myself will teach him how to live. What Minkaya actually did is he adopted my dad as his own son. Now, if you've seen under the spear, the, the man Minkai came to faith shortly after Aunt Rachel moved in. But in the movie, the character is Minkayani. And Ani is a suffix which means and the people. So the only part of the, the movie that is not accurate or that didn't actually happen is the end scene. They had to show the reconciliation that took place. And Minkayani was Minkai and the people's story wrapped into one character. Anyway, so Minkai adopted my dad. Well, we're going to fast forward the story until 1994. In 1994, Aunt Rachel died of cancer. She was buried out in Tonyampati where she had lived the last years of her life, having spent 36 plus years in the jungles with the Waodani. My dad went down for the funeral, and after the funeral, Dawa came to my dad in front of all the people, and she said, Baba, now that Nemo is dead, you being part of our family, you and your family need to come and live with us. And my dad said, no. And then Dawa, not being you know, thwarted, she said, well, Nemo and Rachel said that you would come. Now, if any of you had ever met Aunt Rachel, she was a very stubborn woman. Okay? And you know, when she was alive, you, you couldn't win an argument. And now they had just buried her body. And so he knew he wasn't going to win, so he used the typical North American excuse that you or I might use. Your pastor comes up to you and says, hey, Man, Chris, there's a new ministry that, that we're starting a church and you would be the perfect person to lead that. And you don't want to do it. What do you say? You can't say no to the pastor. I'll pray about it. I'll pray about it, right? Because how does somebody else know what... You've used that one before, right? Because <laughs> how does somebody else know what God tells you? But Dawa turned back to the people. She said, Inyanani. Um, oh, I'm sorry. There was one more. So my dad... He said, because uh, they said they'd already prayed about it and God sees it well. So, 
But then thinking quickly on his feet, he said, Okay, Wang Ongi, the creator, and Ongi Kamu. That's my mom. They said, both of them seeing it, well, surely will come. Because my dad, my mom wasn't there. And even, even if there was a way to call from the Amazon to North America, they didn't speak the same language. But Dawa turned back to the people and she said, People, only in Kamo being a Christ follower, if God sees it well, how can she not? So in 1995, two weeks after I graduated high school, we moved down to live with the Waodani in the Amazon. And when we got there, we said, Okay, so what do you want us to do for you? Because that's what missionaries, they do things, right? And they said, no, we don't want you to do anything. They said, foreigners are always coming and they're doing and they're doing. They come and they take care of our medical problems. They come and they take care of our dental problems. When there's an emergency, they'll even fly us out of the jungles to a hospital. But they said, there's two problems. And this is what you need to key in on. Problem number one. They only come when it's convenient for them, not when we have a problem. Problem number two. When they come, they can only mean a physical need. Our people have a bigger need. They have a spiritual need. But they said, but if you will teach us to do what the foreigners know how to do, we will not only be here when there's a problem, but as we take care of their physical problem, we'll tell them how Jesus can fix our heart. And that was the basis on which iTech was founded. So today what we do is we travel around the world to equip indigenous Christ followers with skills to meet felt needs as a door opener to share the gospel. See, we did not understand missions until we saw missions from the receiver's point of view. When we were living with the Waodani, we felt what they felt. We saw what they saw. And we realize that so oftentimes well-meaning, well-intentioned people go and do things that cause harm. There are books, one of which I'm going to share an illustration out of. It's the first book that came out about this concept. It's called The Great Omission. My dad wrote this after living with the well. And it's the single greatest omission that the North American church is committed in trying to fulfill the Great Commission, and that's leaving out the indigenous, Christ followers. Then there's books like When Helping Hurts, Toxic Charity, Charity Detox, great books on this subject, talking about don't go and do for people what they can and should do for themselves. But, if we go and we train them with the skills that they see the need for and we'll get into that more when I talk about the five principles then they will not only be able to use it while we're there but when we leave everything that we were doing they continue I was in Nigeria recently and as is pretty typical they asked the white guy to preach on Sunday right and I asked the Nigerians I said who is better to reach Nigeria, you or me? And there's about seven or 800 people in the room. And nobody responded. I said, you need to respond. Who is better to reach Nigeria, 
you or me? And they said, we are. I said, why? And they said, we are Nigerian. Then they called a good friend. I don't know if she's in here. Pamela? Oh, there's Pamela. Pamela, stand up. Listen, if you want, you need to talk to Pamela. So Pamela was with us. Pamela is a nurse from Kenya. Um, her and her husband, Frank, great ministry, Hope Alive. And Sarah's a part of that as well. Anyway, I called Pamela towards the front of the room. And I said, where is Mama Pamela from? And they said, Nigeria. I said, no, she's not. She's from Kenya. But she looks like you. She speaks like you. And she dresses like you. So who is better in Nigeria? Me or Pam? Pam is. And as you sit there, and, and Rhonda, one of the nurses at ITEC, she can attest to this. When Pam taught, there's a whole new level of engagement than when Rhonda or Trina or Tom taught. It's just, it's a different thing because there's a cultural familiarity there. Now, You've all heard of the concept of giving somebody a fish rather than um, rather than teaching them, right? You feed them a, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach him how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Giving a hand up rather than a hand out, which I think our government could probably learn a thing or two about that. So, before we go on, we need to understand the mission that we're on, the mission that Christ has given us. And you know, today in the world, there's approximately 7.8 billion people. 3.2 billion of those, give or take, have never heard the name of Jesus. So I'm going to ask a few of my people to come up. And I have, a, I have an illustration. We have a camera here, so I have to stay like... It's very, very difficult. <laughs> Now, when I look at my bank account, I I can't fathom, you know, 3.2 billion dollars. So 3.2 billion doesn't mean anything to me. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to explain the Great Commission. But first, there was a Barna study that came out at the end of 2019 that asked regular church attenders in the United States. These are not the Easter and Christmas. These are the weekly, in and day in and day out, people that attend church every Sunday. They ask this question. Have you ever heard the Great Commission? And if you have, what does it mean? 51% of people that are sitting in the chairs or pews every Sunday in this country said no, they had never heard the Great Commission. Only 17% said yes, they had heard it, and this is what it means. Yet the one mission that Christ has put us on this planet to accomplish 
is the Great Commission. So I'm sure he would come down and say, wow, 17% of you know what it is? Fantastic. Now, the Great Commission, we find that in Matthew chapter 28. And if we paraphrase it, it really says, go and make disciples. And in 2 Timothy 2.2, we find out what the definition of a disciple is. A disciple, when Paul tells Timothy, his disciple, to stay, and you can set that down, guys, stay right where you are, please. Paul tells Timothy, no, leave it there. Stay there, stay there. Guys, stay there. I'm going to have you stay right where you are. Keep holding on to it. You're doing good. Paul tells Timothy, the things which you have heard of me, among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There are four generations of believers there. Paul, Timothy, faithful, others. Discipleship is kind of like Parents, kids, and then grandkids. Which, I realize that with my parents and my in-laws, I mean very little to them. But they invite me over because I bring the grandkids over. (laughs) But there's something very interesting that took place. See, my parents don't tie my shoes anymore. They don't even tie my kids' shoes. Why? Because they taught me, and I taught my kids. The true test of discipleship is the true test of parenthood. How your kids turn out is not it. It's how your grandkids turn out. Because I can tell my kids, this is what you're going to do. And they have to obey that. And I can, because otherwise, I take the keys from the car. I take the phone away, and guess what? They will toe the line. But, I will have no control over my grandkids. Because grandparents, they spoil the kid, the grandkids, send them home, they don't have to deal with the mess. Love it. I don't have any grandkids yet. Hopefully not for a few more years. Now, guys, if you will hold that up, here's what we're going to do. 300 feet, we're going to round down the people that have never heard the gospel. 3.2 billion people, we're going to round that down to 3 billion. You have to hold it high enough for this camera to catch it. There you go. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to equate 3 billion people to 300 feet. Are you with me? 300 foot tape equals 3 billion people. Still with me? Guys, you can set that down. Thank you, and you can have a seat. Thank you very much. Now, today in the world, there are approximately, we're going to use round numbers, approximately 100,000 long-term foreign evangelical missionaries. Okay? Now, on this scale, 300 feet equals 3 billion people. The 100,000 long-term foreign evangelical missionaries on this scale comes to about right here. One-eighth of an inch. Okay? Now, let's say that those people are real go-getters. They are on fire. They are sharing the gospel. 
And each of them reached 500 people with the gospel. Now, my friend Chris, who's joining iTech in January, um, he was just a missionary in, in Nizna, South Africa, for six years. And I've asked him, I said, would it be possible for you to lead 500 people to the Lord in Nizna, South Africa? Take a ton of work. Nearly impossible. But, if each of those 100,000 each reach 500 people with the gospel, we get to approximately 5 feet. Again, 100,000 long-term 40 evangelical missionaries, 300 feet equals the Great Commission, the 3 billion. That's where we are. And that would be nearly impossible. So one of two things I would submit to you is the case. Either Jesus gave us a task that is impossible to complete, or we're not doing God's will God's way. Now, being a dad of daughters, I prayed a long time ago for patience. God gave me six daughters. I've never told one of my girls to do something that I knew was impossible for them to do. And I don't think Jesus would have given us something that He knew was impossible. Let's do the math a little bit differently. We have 100,000 long-term foreign evangelical missionaries, and each of them disciple 60 indigenous Christ followers. And then each of those 60 reach 500 people with the gospel. Do you know where we get to? We get to 300 feet. 3 billion people. Jesus did not say, go and evangelize the world. He said, go and make disciples. If we don't do God's will God's way, we are spinning our wheels. Listen, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. But He has chosen to use us if we are willing. But if we're going to do God's will, we need to do it God's way. And it has to be about discipling the indigenous church. Now, let's get to those five principles and maybe we'll have time for a question or two. Principle number one. Learn to listen. So, as I was, um, you know, I've been married for a little over 25 years. And early on in my marriage, my wife would share problems with me. And all you guys can attest, if you're married, that as she's talking, I have a three-step process to solve the problem. And I'm ready to just jump in. And then I realized my, my wife does not want me to solve the problem. She just wants me to listen. Ladies, can I get an amen? Gentlemen, if you want a happy life, there's two steps. One, stay out of debt. And two, learn to listen. Don't solve the problem. There's a great uh, YouTube video, the lady with the nail in her head. Right? And her husband is talking about there. And Anyway, YouTube it, lady with the nail in her head. You'll, you'll get it. Learn to listen. Um, there's a, I want to show you a video of a guy named Mike Goddard. 
He worked, his parents worked in Paraguay. He worked in Paraguay. Now he has turned everything over to the indigenous. He is a pastor in the Orlando area. Still working with them, still encouraging them. But the ministry is now the leaders in Paraguay. And he has something to say about Learn to Listen. as North Americans. Uh, I can't speak for other countries per se, but in, in the U.S., we're, we're very much problem solvers. And especially if somehow it benefits us in the long run. It's just, it's just part of this nationalism that we, <laughs> we, um, we, we, we have. And we, we take that wherever we go. Um, so in short-term missions, without even trying to, we, we go and see what, what the people need and what they're lacking. And, and it's based on my assumptions. Uh, an example I've given in the past is, is we who in a Western society walk around with shoes on and name brand Nikes, you know, you, you name a whole bunch of well-popular names that, that, that might have a price tag added to it. Um, uh, that's the, what we're accustomed to. We go overseas into a context where we see children walking barefoot. We say, this is bad. Uh, this this is a problem. We need to solve it. So we're going to find ways of solving that and, and provide shoes. When in reality, um, walking barefoot is not a bad thing. And in that context, uh, it, <laughs> it's quieter when you're walking in the woods. You're able to hunt. Um, I've been on hunting trips with my friends. And they all kind of look over their shoulder at me in... in uh, really unhappy because I've got these shoes, clomp, 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 you know, and, and I'm cracking on, on, on uh, snapping twigs, and, and they're quietly, stealthily walking through the woods barefoot with callous feet. So we often look at barefoot as, 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 as an evil that we have to fix, when in reality that, that's not even a problem. It never was a problem. So. We're providing solutions for things that aren't even a problem locally. But then if we're listening to the same individuals that are walking barefoot, if we're listening to them, we begin hearing what they feel really is a problem. That's, that's where the rubber meets the road, where we can actually become what I, what I call a facilitator or someone who empowers the locals to, to problem solve. Uh, this, this is part of coaching as well. You help the individual uh, sort through what the issues are that they're facing and, and some ideas as to how to overcome. But the, the solution itself usually uh, it comes in the mind of the, the local saying, oh, now, yes, now I understand how I, can, how I can overcome this issue. Hey, by the way, can you help train me to do that? Uh, of course, the answer is yes, absolutely. Let's walk together through this. That's where short-term missions is headed, and it needs to go. So learning to listen. Principle number two is understand the need. Until we learn how to listen, we will never understand the need from the locals' point of view. We will go in and we see squatty potties. And what do we want to do? 
We want to build a latrine with Western-style toilets. Let me tell you, squatty potties work very, very well. There's a YouTube commercial about that as well. And I have one at my house, um, the one that fits underneath the toilet. Watch it. It's a great... If you like Princess Bride, you'll really like the commercial about squatty potties. So I understand the need. So often... We go to the locals and we try to do for them what they don't even perceive as a need. This next video is um, is the director of ITEC Ecuador, a good friend. His grandparents and my grandparents work together. And um, this is uh, Galo Ortiz. Uh, I think you'll I think you'll like this video. There's a lot of things that there's a lot of things that as people uh, being raised in a developed country like this, it makes you and gives you more perspectives and ideas about how to do things. You know, because the resources, because the the information, the infrastructure, and, and it is great. You know, I think a, a partner from the United States, it's it's really viable. Now, trying to understand what's the need is the hard part because normally we have a solutions here. You know, there's you get in the internet and you and you get a solution for almost anything. Um, but how that can be effective and the receiver end that's that's the hard part. Um, we can probably say, well, they don't have a good quality water, for example, and it happened to us. Um, well, we can install a filter. You can get filters. But we don't know what kind of water they are receiving. Me as growing up in Shell, we don't have um, uh, good, you know, good quality water, not because it has bacteria, but because it has a lot of sand and mud. So, in our area, a lot of people wanted to install filters. Do you know what happened? The first day, they run out of water. Why? Because the filters get clogged with sand and mud. Filter cleans water? Yes. It's a, you know, everywhere in the United States, you install a filter, water, purifier, it works. But there, works for a day. So, how do you know that? Because you live there, you get connections, you get information, and you get the right need. So we need to understand the need from the locals' point of view, not from ours. They see their needs, they know what the community needs. And it's typically not what we see that they need. So, principle number one, learn to listen. Principle number two, build on what they, or sorry, understand the need. Principle number three, build on what they have. They need to own it from the start. If they don't have skin in the game, then it's yours, not theirs. Now, it doesn't need to be 
we put in a dollar, they put in a dollar. No, because they probably don't have the capacity. So often when we travel around the world, I get told, man, these people, they have no money. But if there's a photo opportunity, everybody's pulling out a cell phone. And there's not a cell phone company in the world that gives out minutes and data for free. It's not that they don't have money. It's they may not have as much, but it comes down to priority. They can contribute. It may even be time. It may be logistics. It may be a lot of different things that they contribute um, toward it, but they have to have skin in the game. Um, This is, uh, probably some of you know, this next guy, his name is Dr. Tom McKechnie with Teach to Transform. Um, afterwards, if you go and, and get a book or, or whatever, their booth is right next to ours on this level, straight in. Um, he's the founder of Teach to Transform and is building on what they have. started missions, it was go and do. You know, I did the huge medical clinics, uh, a lot of them through Southeast. We, we would see just uh, patient after patient. But it was, the line was, uh, was you could never, uh, the day wasn't long enough to see the hundreds and, and sometimes thousands of patients uh, that we would see on these trips. So the question kept being asked to me and gnawing at me, why am I leaving uh, when there's so many more to see? And so God was speaking to me about the way I was doing it. And then one particular trip I was on, um, uh, the team was sick, so I was up every night and I heard crying in the distance. And I thought, how peaceful is this? And saw these little bit of fires. And uh, So the next morning, my first patient, uh, a mother came and said, my child felt hot, wasn't eating, and couldn't breastfeed anymore. So I thought, well, just a respiratory. And when I opened up the blanket, to my horror, the baby had died. So I reflected on that and I said, God, what are you... What are you showing me by this? And it came to me very quickly. What if she would? What if she knew the signs of respiratory distress in a newborn? What if I could have trained someone to recognize that this baby should have been looked at a day or two ago? So um, through that process, I started to look at the way I was doing missions. Yeah. So often we we equate low technology with low intelligence. Those are not synonymous. Low technology does not mean low intelligence. They can learn. We need to build on what they have. They need to have skin. They need to own it. So then number four, go and train. When we continue to do the same things that we've been doing for years and years and years, I think, that, and we expect different results, I think that's the definition of insanity. But if we're going to do God's will, God's way, we need to make disciples. We need to go and train. And this is actually Pam's husband, Francis, or Frank, um, the founder of Hope Alive, and uh, go and train. Let's watch. of helping churches to have an impact in poor communities, you have to help them to see that they have a role to play in the Great Commission. They have to learn to obey the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, and the Great Concern. 
Because what happens is there is always a temptation to rely on outsiders to do the work for them. When actually, the Bible says clearly, the laborers are few. So our goal is to make sure that these local churches, the pastors and leaders become effective laborers in their communities. Because the church is the key to the transformation of their communities. I don't think government can do it. I think over working over time in several countries, the government doesn't have enough resources in any country to solve problems in the community. So for us, we believe the church is key in bringing transformation in communities. That is means spiritual change, uh, mind change, things to do with education, physical, taking care of physical needs, meeting social needs. Um, we find people are lonely, we need counseling, and some countries, basically, they are no counselors. So we train churches in all those areas to learn to meet those needs. Uh, biblically, we also believe that the church is God's footprint on the ground. Without the church, the Lord cannot work in a community. He needs us, and we need Him. The key for transformation is the local church. Training and equipping the local church, the indigenous church, if you've been through perspectives, they have in perspective something called the E-scale, the evangelism scale. And E-0 is somebody comes into your church, and there is no barrier to share the gospel. They have willingly come into the doors of your church. E1 is you go outside the doors of the church, but into your community. E2 is now you're going into a neighboring community, still very similar in culture, but just a little bit different. And then E3 and E4. E4 is like me going to Nigeria to share the gospel when there are people in Nigeria who know the gospel and can share it without a language barrier, without a cultural barrier, without any barriers. And so, oftentimes, they don't have the access to people. So by training them with a skill that is a need in their community, they can have greater access. And we have, have people in Liberia, in India, in many other places, who we've trained, and they are being begged, begged by unreached people groups to come in because they're bringing something to meet the needs of people. It's the same model that Jesus did. He healed people and then He left. And everybody followed Him. Because they had never seen somebody who loved like that. And then He would sit down and teach them. Maybe He stood up and taught them. But He taught them. And that's what we're seeing around the world. When there's no language barrier and you go in and you look like them, you understand the culture, the context, even the nuances. I was in Nigeria in uh, December. And everybody wanted, we were the, there was a, an indigenous missions conference. And the ministry invited us, two of us, to come over. We were the only outside group invited. And everybody wanted to take their picture, their snap with us. And they're all smiling until they get in the picture and then they don't, they're not smiling. And I've always wondered that in graduation ceremonies where we've trained people, they don't smile. And I'm like, why are they not smiling? They're smiling up until the time they get in the picture. And I was told, they consider a picture a very serious thing. And so if they're smiling, they're making light of having their picture taken. 
Now, I've been to over 50 countries around the world. I, figure, I, I consider myself fairly culturally adept. No idea. But go and train. They understand the culture, the people, the languages. They are the best people in that area to share the gospel. So go and train them in a skill that they... Remember, we need to understand the need from their point of view, not our point of view. They need to have skin in the game, and then we need to go and train. The next one is follow-up. A friend of mine, Umal, uh, from Uganda, um, has a video to share with us. says, and he had said it one time, he said, look, train us, and then leave, and come back and polish our skills, and then go somewhere else. We don't need you anymore. But we like to be needed, don't we? We like to be needed. But that's not what Jesus has called us to do. Go and make disciples, and then, you know what? They don't need you anymore. Let them be the disciple makers in their place. And you go and do it somewhere else. You know, so often we focus on the areas where we're different. You know, partnership. Uh, Dr. Florence talked about that a little bit last night. About partnerships are important. You know, we have to realize that those who are being trained and those who are training, we're all the same at the foot of the cross. My friend Bill Griffin with CMDA, he's uh, over the dental side of CMDA. He comes on trips with us as well. That's what he said. He said, we are all the same at the foot of the cross. There's no hierarchy there. We're brothers and sisters training brothers and sisters. So, then we can all be on mission for the Great Commission. Um, When we... If we're going to partner, what we need to realize, we need to focus on where we're the same, not where we're different. So often we focus on, like in church life, right? Where their music is a little bit, eh, it's too loud. Their pastor preaches too long. They use wine in communion rather than grape juice. Or they don't offer me wine, they only serve grape juice. There's all these little differences. But when we can realize that there is one God, one Savior, one Spirit, one body, and one mission, then we can walk together in humility for the three billion people who have never heard. That's what it's about. So, that's all I have for you. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to take a couple of those now.
Yes. Yes. So the math for the for the reaching the three billion people or the three hundred feet, one hundred thousand long term foreign evangelical missionaries, each disciple sixty, indigenous Christ followers, and each of them reached five hundred. Now, there was one thing that I did not include and I'm gonna tell you that now. Thank you for the reminder. Of those, there's actually not a hundred thousand. Last I looked 59,000 long-term foreign evangelical missionaries. The number one receiving country in the, in the world for foreign evangelical missionaries, United States of America. 90% of those who are long-term foreign evangelicals, they are working in countries that are considered reached. Not unreached. One other statistic out of every $100,000 that Christ followers in the United States make, okay, $107 goes to missions. That is one-tenth of one percent. Of that, $1 goes to reach unreached people groups. That is one-one-hundredth of one-tenth of one percent of what we Christ followers in this country make go to reach the Great Commission. Yet we are in a war... And we are not living like we're in a war. And I'm not condemning anything, but it's very easy for any one of us, not me because I don't drink coffee, to go to Starbucks and spend $5 on a frappe, cappuccino, latte, caramelized, whatever it is, a milkshake with a little bit of coffee in it, and we don't think anything about it, but yet we're spending one one hundredth and one tenth and one percent to reach what Jesus called us here to do. That was a long answer to your but another question? Yes. Why don't you sit for the you know in summer uh, there is a lot of student uh, mission trips that they go for one week. Okay, so what, how do we handle you know, the summer trips where we want to send youth around the world to get exposed to missions? Um, one would be one suggestion I have would be rather than going and building a building, go and ask the partner, say, can we come and learn from you what missions is like there? And instead of staying in the hotel, Okay? Oh, somebody's already on this path. So instead of staying in a hotel, have two kids stay in a one of the leaders of the church in their house. And these two kids stay in that house. And have the devotions with the family, eat with the family, sleep there in the same house as the family. And do you know what's going to happen? Two things. One, a lot of kids are not going to want to go. Two, those who are serious about missions they're going to go and they're going to see what it's really all about. Because when we go and we build a building or do a VBS, and maybe stepping on toes, I've done that as well. But when we go and do those things that they can and should do for themselves, or um, there was a church, in fact it was my church, and our pastor wanted a very inexpensive way to expose people to the mission field. 
So where did they go? Tijuana, Mexico. And their shirts the first year said beans and rice and Jesus Christ. And here's what they did. They did a carnival at the end of the week inviting all the families. And if you stayed for the gospel presentation, then you get a bag of beans and rice. A little bait and switch. That is not what we're called to do. It is not the Great Commission. There are churches that want to partner with churches overseas. I've suggested at times past. In fact, I suggested yesterday. Somebody I was talking to, I said, look, if you want to help them build a building, for every dollar that they raise, match it with a dollar. Or match it with two dollars. But then they hire people from their church or their community to build the building. You're able to participate. You can even go for the grand, you know, whatever. But they own it. It's their dollar is number one. Then we match it. And do you know what that does? Yeah, the kids don't get to go over and build a building and then they have to tear it down and build it right. Because those kids were the doctors and, and lawyers and all that stuff. They go over. They've never built a building. And there are people that need jobs right there. There's a way we can come alongside. But we need to do it in a healthy manner. So if we're going to go, man, send the kids. That's great. But have them learn. And you know what? They want their... There was a, a magazine that called them vacationaries. Right? So rather than that, send them over and let them go to the beach or the market or whatever it is. Hire somebody from the church to be their tour guide. And now the church, you're building up the church, you're empowering the church, you're sitting under the church rather than lording over the church. They are in the driver's seat. We do a trip called a Wild Vision Trip. The, the Wild Donnie tribe asked us to do that, where we go in and we live in the jungles for four days, three nights, and see all of Ecuador. And there's, I mean, it's a great cultural experience. But what ends up happening is we see missions from the receiver's point of view. They are in the driver's seat, not us. And any time we can put them in the driver's seat and learn from them and, not, and stay with them so we get a, a true taste, because when we train the kids that missions is about building, building, or giving out beans and rice, we've done a disservice to them. Because that's not missions. Sorry. Stepping off the soapbox now. One more question and then we got to go. Maybe zero more questions and then we're going to go. Let me encourage you... Um, we have some rag cards. Where are those? So Chris has rag cards. What those are, that gives some of the statistics that I shared. And then it gives you the five principles. And then, then we have a mission-minded podcast to our YouTube channel or on our website where you can watch me go into more of the uh, five principles. But grab one of those rag cards. Take that with you. Um, that, that way you can just kind of Meditate on some of those statistics. It doesn't have this 300-foot tape. That's in the Great Omission, page 49 of the Great Omission. And if you'd like one of those, stop by the booth until we're out. If you promise to read it, you can have it. If you want to make a donation, you can, but you don't need to, as long as you read it. Okay? Thank you very much.